Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, was published in 2009. It has never been a New York Times bestseller, though. The book's message has impacted tens of thousands of businesses, and the momentum seems to only be building. But it's not a bestseller. That wasn't the why behind writing it. There are 26.2 miles in a marathon. That is a long way to run. Most of us would ask, why would somebody run that far? There are 1,650 miles in 63 marathons. Now That's a long way to drive. Even my buddy Forrest Gump would question the sanity of someone attempting that distance. Welcome to the Impact of Leadership podcast, where we believe that no one, no one, no one drifts into excellence. I'm your host, Steve Shear, and in this episode, we're going to get into the mind of an ultramarathoner who also happens to be the owner of a dude ranch in the Bay Area of California. Tim Borland is the guest today, and he has a story that touches on mental toughness, a growing family, extreme feats, failure, success, being broke, being famous, and then starting all over. You'll hear the why throughout this conversation and identify with much of Tim's journey. So let's drop in as Tim is working a regular job and a comment that only a loving grandma would make. So it was a couple of years out of high school. I found myself living and working at an Applebee's restaurant in the kitchen full time, uh, working 80, 90 hours a week at the restaurant and not getting out much, eating lots of Applebee's meals, not moving at all. I was losing my, my high school physique. So I was a swimmer in high school and was, was pretty fit and active, but then uh, moved into a different lifestyle. It's somewhat embarrassing, but I think a lot of people could relate to this because I think a lot of folks have grandmas that are unfiltered and just tell you how it is, right? Mm -hmm. That's grandma's role. Yep. Uh, I heard, yep, that's it. Yeah. So one day grandma's visiting and she looks at me and she says, Tim, you're really fat. What happened to you? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah, you're probably right. And what happened was was hundreds of mozza fried mozzarella sticks and double bacon cheeseburgers at Applebee's and not moving. Um, so I, I, I actually found a, a picture from high school when I was a swimmer. And I'll never forget Steve standing in front of the mirror and, and holding this, you know, it's the 90s, right? So it's probably a Polaroid. Right? <laughs> holding this picture and picking up my shirt and looking at the mirror and looking at the picture of myself, thinking, holy Lord, what, like, what happened? How did this get away from me? And, and what do I, how do I go back? So that was, that was the beginning. That was honestly, that was the spark. And my, my folks were always, I, I guess you could call them fitness joggers. They'd run two or three days a week, two, three, four miles just, just to stay fit. And so I thought, well, I guess if you want to get fit, you jog. So I put on not a pair of running shoes, a pair of whatever sort of quote unquote tennis shoes, running shoes I had. And I decided I'd go for a three mile jog and I barely made it. <laughs> that hurt so bad. Uh, but I, I just, I had this conviction that I needed to, to change things around. So I literally, I, I, I want to say it was probably the next day I went to work and I started eating turkey, lettuce sandwiches and drinking lots of water and not eating the burgers and drinking the milkshakes. Uh, so I, I literally you know, drew a line in the set, sand and said, I want to start jogging. I want to start eating better. I need to not be fat. I want grandma to not tell me I'm fat. <laughs> So I, I ran, uh, I ran three miles last year 
with my brother-in-law for the first time in a really, really long time. And I felt like, you know, my, my face was falling off, you know, my, uh, it was awful. It was so painful. So, uh, you're taking me back, back there a little bit, but, um, and that was just, I, instead of my grandma or instead of grandma doing it, you know, my wife actually was like, you, you're not going to actually go running with, with my brother, are you? And I was like, well, you think I can't do it? So I felt a little, uh, a little pride welling up in me. Yeah. Yes. Um, I made it, but I almost died. It was, it was awful. But, um, uh, so the, the progression in that first pain filled run to what running became in your life, you know, walk us through that. Cause there's a lot there. Yeah, there, there is a lot there and it's, you know, to, to not, to not get into the nitty gritty details, but, but basically just high level for me. And I have talked to some number of folks that can relate to this and, and maybe you can as well, Steve, but if you, if you stick with it, it starts to be less painful, right. And, and more manageable. And then you're a bit more motivated to go out and run. Um, but having a goal, right. We know this in life and business that having a goal, attaining a goal and, and, and having sometimes having a goals within a goal, right. So, so if my initial goal was standing in front of that mirror, picking up my shirt, looking at myself saying, I got to go back to where I was like, this, this isn't healthy. This isn't acceptable. That, that's, that's a pretty tough goal. There's, that's, there's a long journey. Who knows how long it could take? There's not a lot of metrics there. Um, you, you could say physically it looks, you know, I look better. You could measure the waist. We know that measuring weight isn't helpful because muscle is heavier than fat. So you shouldn't use the scale as a metric. Some people can measure their waistline, right? There's a lot of different things. But I, I, think, I think one goal that, that folks love, you know, a way to set a goal uh, is one where you can actually accomplish some event, right? So this is where... Mm-hmm. Anytime it's, it's physical fitness related, if there's some sort of event, it doesn't have to be a competition, right? But some sort of event, hey, I want to run my first 5K. I want to be able to hike this mountain. I want to be able to, I don't know, do, paddle, kayak across a lake, whatever it might be, right? But you're, you're getting to a place where you got a goal. So, so I, I had a, a goal of just being able to, mine was honestly, I want to be able to run three miles and feel really good. I want to, I would actually love my three mile run and not dread it and not have it suck and not have cramps and side stitches. And, and I want to, I was started to hear about those runners high. It's like, I, w- I want to feel this. And so, so I stuck with it and, and I, I don't remember the, the period of time, but it definitely didn't take as long as I, I thought it would. And so I remember getting to the point to where three miles was really easy. And then what happened was I got to a place where I was hitting and a lot of people have a hard time getting past three miles. So you, mm-hmm. you might have, you might be able to relate to this, but I think a lot of runners, a lot of folks who started running know that there's, it just really sucks the first couple of miles. And so yep. I, I studied, right, I studied kinesiology and we talk about the human body and, and, and just all of the, all of the things that have to happen, the gears and the wheels turning and your heart rate has to, has to level out. Your breathing has to get under control. All right, there's a lot physiologically that has to happen before you can get into like a steady state where you feel pretty good. You're moving, but you're feeling pretty good, right? So a lot of people, the first couple of miles, their body's just, their body's going through this, this rocky couple of miles where their, their breathing's sporadic and erratic, right? Their heart rate hasn't quite settled and they're just thinking, man, this sucks. I'm, I'm heaving and and it's not like I'm not feeling good. And so a lot of people just fall short. They'll, they'll stop um, before they actually get to a point to where the body starts to recognize 
that that running is a normal thing and and sort of mm-hmm. all of your systems come into check right and everything balances out and so i found that to be unfortunately after the three mile mark it was more like you know the four or five mile mark and i just remember hitting this point hitting this four or five mile mark where i thought oh my gosh i feel like i just sort of i i was i was able to break the chains off and now running feels really good and i'm starting to get that runner high and it's really euphoric and so so that was what I was hoping to accomplish, and I eventually got mm-hmm. there, and I, I definitely found it. So, so one of the earliest lessons I've learned is if you haven't been, you know, if you're not there yet, you just got to keep going, right? But the challenge is we want to feel good or we want to accomplish the goal sooner than our body or our mind maybe is able and willing to. And mm-hmm. so one thing I learned early on is either your body submits to your mind or your mind submits to your body. And we have a choice, but are we going to let the pain of our body tell our mind to shut down and stop and, and give up and go home? Or are we going to let the mind, and then, you know, this, we'll get into it later, right? The power of a purpose. And, but are we going to let our mind say, hey, you know what? I've got a goal and I will, my mind will tell my body, shut up and keep going. We haven't accomplished our goal yet. <laughs> Right. Yep. So, so I mean, people talk about mind over body, but but I like to take it one step further and say, is it you know, your mind will submit to your body, or your body will submit to your mind? So that was one of my earliest lessons. Was I really want to make sure that I have some goals, that I have some accomplishments, some achievements that I'm going for, that my mind knows what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, and then my body will just need to submit and follow along. So then you you make it past that uh that that 5 6 mile mark what did you ultimately end up doing because if you have to if you're keeping setting goals um what was the next thing and where did it take where did it take you where did you end up well the next thing was i wanted to become competitive so i ended up joining the cross country team in junior college and i had never run in high school so here i am a junior college student running cross country for the first time because I didn't know how to properly work out and train. So I wanted to join a team. I I ended up joining then the triathlon team at at Cal Poly at the university. So I wanted to spend some time actually getting some coaching and training on how to, how to work out, how to improve my times, how to be more efficient and more effective uh, as a runner. And then I ended up going back to swimming, which I did in high school and loved swimming. And then I picked up my bike and decided I wanted to ride to work and all over town. And so the next thing I knew it, I was getting into triathlons. And it it got to be it's almost it's almost dangerous when when you find yourself when you find yourself in a place where you feel a little bit in, invincible and indestructible. But at, but at the same time, it's only when you get into that place where you feel sort of invincible and indestructible that you push yourself to a level that other people would consider crazy without having done much, uh, you know, outside of just my own sort of backyard training. If you would, I found myself signed up for one of the toughest half Ironman triathlon courses in the country. And I, this, this sort of another, another turning point for me, uh, I, I went and, and competed in a, so I signed up for a half Ironman triathlon, which is a, a, a 1.2 mile swim, a 56 mile bike and a half marathon run. I, I definitely was out of my league, but again, this was one of those things where I was trying to figure out, Hey, what are, what are my limitations? And, and, you know, how do we know what we're capable of? 
unless we push ourselves over, you know, quote unquote, over the edge, right? So sure, yeah, it's it's so common because it's so safe, right, to live in a place that's a bit more predictable and expectable, and and oftentimes, unfortunately, based on what people around us right tell us is is reasonable and realistic. Very few people in my very few people in my in my circle thought that what I was doing was was reasonable or realistic, but I didn't really care. I was willing to go out and just see what my body was capable of doing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I did this half Ironman and it was, it was stinking brutal, man. It was definitely the hardest thing I'd ever done. It took me a little over six hours just to give you an idea time-wise. Uh, and it's, it's funny that the bike, it's one of the toughest courses in the, in the world because the bike and the run are pretty much always uphill. So my joke is that even the swim is uphill, which I just <laughs> right, you, know, you, right. can't, you can't swim uphill, but it sure feels like it. Um, so I remember coming across the finish line, literally falling to the ground, laying on my back on the ground and, and having that, ha- having the sort of the yin and the yang, the juxtaposition feeling of, oh my gosh, I'm so trashed. What was I thinking? I'm way out of my league. Why did I sign up for this? And then immediately went to the well, I'm going to do this again. Like I'm embarrassed of how bad I feel and how long it took me. So I'm going to go back home and I'm going to train harder. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to train harder. And I'm going to come back and do this again. And I'm going to you know, do it so much better. So that was, a, that was a big turning point for me as well, where I thought, you know what? Like, now I need to go back and just make sure that I'm doing my preparation. I'm more intentional about my preparation um, for the manifestation of you know, my next goal. Right? But I, I realize that we can really, we can really do whatever we want to do. Right. And, and we hear this all the time and people say it, but I think it's a lot harder to actually believe it and then live it. But we really can do, we can set out to do whatever we want to do. And this is back to, will the body submit to the mind or will the mind submit to the body? And, you know, laying there on the ground at the finish line of this half Ironman thinking, you know, this was the dumbest thing I ever did. Instead, walking away saying, you know what, I accomplished my goal. I didn't feel as good as I should have because I know I didn't prepare as well as I could have prepared. So rather than saying, oh, I'm not cut out for this or, oh, you know, I, I, I dreamed a dream that was too big, right? I, I instead, and this is just something that I think is so, so important for us in life is, you know, rather than sizing up the goal, we need to size up the preparation to accomplish that goal. And we need to let our goals be our goals and we need to not think that they're impossible, but rather size them up and just make sure that we're prepared for. So then I went on a whole journey of taking my body through another <laughs> series of tests, trying to see, trying to find the point of limitation. Literally, I, I went on a quest to try to break my body, Steve, and find <laughs> out, like figure out when enough was enough. The modern day, the, the coaching, the typical coaching, the, the expert the expertise would say the textbook, if you would, would tell you, oh, you have to taper before a race and you can only run so many miles. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and they have all these constrictions and restrictions, right, on what you should or shouldn't do. We need to have mentors and coaches in our life. But this is where it's so important to make sure that you find the right people to coach you and mentor you because independently, like nobody should know us better than we know ourselves. We should, we should be so in tune with our mind and our body that we, only we really know what we're capable of doing. And if we're not quite sure what we're capable of doing, then let's go figure it out, right? Let's, 
let's yeah. put our mind and our body to the test. So I went on a six week quest where I ran 70 and 80 miles a week and I raced on the weekends. I ran everything from a half marathon to a 50K um, back to a marathon. One of the half marathons, I ran like eight miles to the start and then ran the half marathon. And I PR'd that half marathon. Um, I went and ran a 50K and finished top three in the 50K. I mean, I was, li- I was literally just trying to hurt myself. And, and at the end of the six weeks, I was going to the Chicago Marathon. And my goal at the end of the six weeks, so my goal wasn't, now it became a point of I want to break myself to now my goal was, as I'm going through the six weeks, feeling stronger and fitter and faster, my goal was now to PR my marathon at the end of this six-week relentless running quest. And, and you can believe how many guys in my network told me I was, I was an idiot, right? Like, I was reckless. Why are you risking your running career? Like, why are you doing this to yourself? What do you have to prove? And I said, I have to prove to myself what I'm actually capable of doing. And it's really not me physically. And this is where, you know, later we get into the, it's more so like mentally, what are we able, what are we able to believe about ourselves and about the possibilities of, mm-hmm. of our you know, of, of our talents and our skills. And so, so I got to Chicago and I was feeling like a million bucks and I had a couple of buddies there and took off and I decided I was going to, I was going to hit the three hour mark. And my best marathon at that time was I think 304, 305. So I was still pretty, pretty decent. I was pretty fast. Um, but I still wanted to, wanted to crush my, my PR and I got out there mm-hmm. And uh, I ran three hours and fifty-seven seconds. And what is that? What is that per mile then? That's about a six forty-seven. So you're yeah. sprinting for twenty-six miles. <laughs> yeah. After purposely trying to destroy my body, or, or really what I was trying to do is, <laughs> is test the limits of my mind and you know my body, right? So at the end of that, I said, "All right, this is absolutely ridiculous. Like, I I don't know where to go from here, but." What I do know is sort of the next big lesson I learned was this idea of having, having purpose over effort. So many people find themselves focused on their, and I, and I was doing this, right? Focused on a time goal, focused on, hey, I'm setting out for this effort. Um, I'm trying to run my best. I'm trying to qualify. I'm trying to uh, win my age group, whatever it might be that, that so many of our physical activities are based around an effort. I'm trying to summit this mountain. And those are all, those are all noble in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but after doing that for several years, I thought, you know what, if I'm going to go any further from a physical standpoint, like I've got to have a purpose that transcends myself, that transcends the effort. So no longer can I be on, can I be on this effort driven purpose path? Now I've, I've got to invert that equation and I've got to make sure that I have a purpose that, that it's now a purpose-driven effort, that my purpose is so clearly defined, it's so powerful, and it transcends myself, and it's more about others. If I can find a purpose that's, that's powerful yeah. enough, you know, the bigger the purpose, the more powerful, more pure the purpose, I think the, the greater the ability you'll have in the effort, right? Like there's, there's actually a correlation between the two, right? I totally, totally agree. I totally agree. It's, it's the Simon Sinek sort of, you know, you know uh, find your why, what, you know, the, the why behind all of your efforts, you know? Absolutely. So that, what, what was it for you? I mean, you, you've already killed your, your, your mile time. What was your, where did you go? What did you find? What did you do? Well, 
so I, I went after purpose. And so I, I have a faith in, in God and believing that God had, had gifted me with the ability to run with uh, this, this talent at the time. And I felt called and purposed to take my running. So there's this idea too where, you're, where talent and passion can intersect with purpose. Like to me, that's sort of the golden, the golden circle is when you can figure out how the things you're talented, how your talents and the things you're passionate about can then intersect with some sort of purpose again, that's bigger mm-hmm. than you. And if, if you can figure out, like, that's the ultimate trifecta, right? That's the ultimate sweet spot where we, where you can get all three of those to intersect. And so I had a talent to run. Um, I had a, a passion uh, to, to try to, you know, now sort of serve others. And so I needed the actual purpose. And, and what ended up happening is just through, through praying for divine connections and, and intersections, I ended up meeting a family whose daughter had been uh, diagnosed with this rare genetic terminal disease at, at, a, at a young age. It's uh, called ataxia telangiectasia. It's a, a, bit of a, a bit of a mouthful, so we just call it AT mm-hmm. for short. And essentially what it is, it's a childhood form of Lou Gehrig's disease. So these kids are born seemingly normal. They can, they can be active at a young age, learn how to ride bikes and, and do some sports, dance, play piano, those sorts of things, have hobbies and activities. But there's a deterioration of the cerebellum that's taking place. And, and so no matter how much you fight against the deterioration of, of the muscles, the atrophine of the muscles, the, the nerves, the nervous system not working properly, no matter how aggressive you are with therapy and rehab, by, by age 10 or so, these kids are wheelchair bound. Mm. Uh, and it just continues to degenerate. And, and at the time... Uh, so we met Catherine was her name. Uh, still, she, Catherine's a beautiful young lady. She's still fighting the good fight and, and doing really well. She's in her 20s now. Uh, but she was around 16 when we met her. This was uh, 2006. So I got to, got to meet her and on the, on the basis of uh, her dad wanting to run a marathon and wanted to raise money for the AT Children's Project, of course, inspired by his daughter Catherine. So I thought, man, you know, this, this would be great. I could, I could coach Jim and train him and, and help him accomplish something great for himself. <laughs> oh, little did I know what I was getting myself into. <laughs> so his first marathon was, the marathon he wanted to run for Catherine was the Disney World Marathon in Orlando. And uh, this is all pre-Facebook and social media. And so back then they had, mm-hmm. I think they used Blackboard. They were trying to, trying to use these early forms of, networking to try to meet other families but there's only about 500 kids in the world that have AT and so pre-social media these families they could be living 100 miles apart and not know each other and uh, because there's so few kids with the disease they felt very isolated and alone they didn't really have a network right of of other families to band together with without us really knowing this we, we ended up the, the guy that introduced Jim and I, uh, so this was a this was a mutual mutual friend introduced us. Said, "Hey, if we're going to do a marathon, we got to go to Disney World. They put on the best races. They know how to put on a marathon." What we didn't know is that the AT Children's Project used the Disney World Marathon as a fundraiser. People would come from all over the Midwest, the East Coast, and this was a chance. This was like the annual reunion for these families to come together. And Jim had no idea what he was that this was happening until literally weeks before we go out to Florida. He's over the moon about this whole deal. And, and I'm now signed up to go with him to run with him. Uh, so you can imagine 
we show up to Orlando, we we get to the ballroom. There's there's hundreds of people gathered. There's a bunch of other families. Jim's now and, and his daughter Catherine, and so his family was there, and they now get to meet and interact with all these other families and and actually uh, you know and actually connect physically with some people that they had never met before and get the kids connected and. Um, so I, I was witnessing that at the time. Uh, I was a young father. My my first child was about ten months old, and so I I had the the heart of a father in me. And uh, as I was just observing in the room and and mm-hmm. watching the families interact and seeing the kids dancing out on the floor in their wheelchairs and everybody celebrating, and then and then hearing from the founder of the organization, he said, "Hey, you know, great things are happening, but we just there's just not enough kids." in our network to justify getting federal dollars, right? Unfortunately, research funding is directly correlated with, you know, the number of infected patients. And so we're we're sort of on our own. Like we got to figure out how to break through the noise where we got to figure out how to rise up above and, and somehow get ourselves some national awareness and attention. Like we need to get on the map. We need people to hear about us. And I don't know what we could do, but we got to do something uh, to get out there to get known. And so you can only imagine my wheels started turning. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out what what to do with my running and how to take it to the next level. Uh, I don't know. Six months later or so, I'm out on a run with Jim. We we're out on a training run for for another event, and I couldn't go running unless I brought my kids. And I, I was telling you, Steve, you were asking me how I got a lot of training in when I had young kids. Yeah. Well, I I put them in a jogging stroller, so I. <laughs> I had a, I had a three wheel yeah. Bob Revolution stroller that I I put probably a couple thousand miles on that thing with with my kids. Uh, it was pretty ridiculous, but it was it was all I knew. It was just that was the way I could go run is if I brought my kids. And so we we had to do this twenty mile run, and I said no problem. I'll, I'll meet you down there. I got to bring the kids. He's like, what? You're gonna run with your kids? I was like, oh yeah, no problem. I got this. So Jim and I are out on this run, and we're running his pace. Uh, which was no big deal for me with, you know, with the two kids. So I'm running with the kids and we're chatting and Jim just keeps looking at me and thinks, this, this is crazy. Like how you're a machine. Like, how are you doing this? No problem. And I said, Oh, well, I've just, yeah, this is how I've been training. And he said, you know, it'd be so cool if I could run a marathon one day with my daughter, Catherine. And I said, Oh yeah, I'd love to put her in, you know, let's get a stroller and I'll put her in the stroller and I'll run with her and we could do a race together. And I, I said, well, and then what if we do it the next day with a different kid? And then what if we do it the next day? Mm-hmm. And by the end of our run, we came up with this crazy wild idea that we would put together a cross-country running tour. So it would be a tour, not a point-to-point run, but we would go on a tour the same way that a, a band would go on a concert tour. We would, have, we would have locations picked out ahead of time, and we would, we would try to map out route, a route that would include as many kids, uh, families that were, that were representing the AT Children's Project you know, as we could. And we would try to get LA to New York and we try, we try to pick up as many families as we could. And so we boldly and courageously dreamed up what became the AT Cure Tour, which was 63 marathons in 63 days, consecutive days from LA to New York, <laughs> 63 different locations. And I pushed a jogging stroller, but m- most, of the, most of the time it was empty. So I ran with a mobility jogging stroller and we'd put a banner we had a, a banner made up for each day. It was, you know, day 25, Albuquerque, New Mexico, running in honor of, and then we would pick a child or sometimes a young adult, and sometimes there were a couple of them because we would get to areas where there were maybe two or three families in that area. 
but every day was committed to running in honor or in memory of some number of kids. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I would do that for the first 23 miles. And then the way we staged it, this was a great idea until it came to manifestation. But I, I wanted to make sure that every day we could, we could involve as many locals as we could to run with us. And so first 23 miles would be around town somewhere. And then the last, we tried to make the last 5K, make it officially 5K, was in okay. like yep. a high school track or a local park where we didn't have to do road closures. We didn't have to do police and any of that sort of stuff. But the last three miles would be a community fun run and everybody from town could, could show up and we would try to, we'd sell shirts and we'd try to get the local community and we would try to get sponsors and, and get the media and whatnot to come in. It was, that was the only way, the only way we could do that is if that happened around 5.30, which meant that I got to start running every day about one o'clock, <laughs> right? Oh right man, at, in the heat right of the, the heat day. of the day. Yes. But again, back to this purpose-driven effort concept that if your purpose is so pure and so powerful, like mm. your effort will be able to match it. Like your, your effort will be able to you'll be able to sort of sustain yourself in such a way because you truly are being, it's like the effort is being pulled along by the purpose, right? Imagine just this being drug along by a, mm-hmm. a freight train. Like if, if your purpose is so powerful, like you'll be able to, you'll be able to hang on. You'll be able to sort of, sort of ride the momentum. So every day we had a community fund run and we, we got, I mean, there were some, some days where we saw five and 600 people come out. It was just absolutely spectacular. So we put together this cross-country running tour, 63 marathon, 63 days uh, documentary. So, so we had a film crew travel with us, Brad and Deb Carr, a really cool young couple that had been involved with the charity and, and their hearts were pulled as well. And they realized, hey, this guy's running. We could film. Like, that's our thing. And they always wanted to tell a story about the AT Children's Project, but they needed a compelling platform, right, for the, for mm-hmm. the story. And so that's really ultimately what this came to be about was you know, if you want to get back to the the why, it's what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, and then why you're going to do it. And what was so great is when it's when it's a purpose driven effort. Naturally, what happens is your conversation leads people right into, or sometimes you don't have to have a conversation. People just know why you're doing what you're doing, mm-hmm. right? But when it's an effort driven purpose, I've I've seen other. Uh, expeditions, running expeditions, if you would, or hiking expeditions, right? We were interviewed by some folks that said, man, I did some research and I learned about all some of these other running expeditions that fell apart and they never finished. And how come you think you're going to finish? And it came back to there's just a number of people that had set out to try to do things. And clearly it was, well, what we're going to do is you know, some monumental effort. And and, And all of the energy and clearly went towards the effort and then it was like dot 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 and by the way we're running for childhood obesity or we're trying to raise awareness for cancer right and and you can see where if you're solely focused on the effort where where the wheels could come off the bus really early on right you can see where it's so much easier to poke holes in your mission and your effort when the purpose is an afterthought so, so this goes all the way back to maybe the beginning of your question, which, you know, which is, where did you go next? And the, and the answer is I went to the purpose and I let the purpose determine the effort. And it was the 63 and 63. That's just what the chair, that's what the families decided, right? So it's like, hey, we want, we put a call out to all the families and said, if you want the tour to come through your town and you want 
Now, Tim's going to do this cross-country deal. We want to support as many families as we can. If you want us to come to your community, if you want us to run for your son or daughter, let's get you on the map. Like, let's get a pin on the map and let's start building out a, a route, right? And, and as we were looking at some of the, the key spots, there were already some families that already had some, some of their own events that they wanted to try to do that year. And so it's perfect. Hey, we're already going to be in some of these locations. But as we started building it out, we got to, I think we got to Detroit. It was like, I'm, I'm not going all the way to Detroit and then stopping. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> so so the, the, only, the only piece that I threw in there was, as I said, we got to go coast to coast. Like at least let's sure. just make sure coast to coast, that's a noble effort and, and we'll pick up even more families. Uh, and, and so we started at Disneyland in Anaheim, Labor Day weekend, and then we were able, the, the calendar worked out. And this is why we went coast to coast because we ended up in New York for the New York City Marathon. That's so cool. So, so that's how they came up with 63 and we met families all along the way. And, and so we drove, just to give you an idea, we drove over 15,000 miles back and forth. And it was like, who did this route for you? Is it a drunken sailor? Like what's going on? <laughs> I'm seeing the, I'm seeing the map and, and I'm, I'm seeing yeah. the route and you're going down to Texas and then back to Colorado and then up to the Great Lakes and then down to Florida and then back up the whole Eastern seaboard. We even went into Montreal, Canada. Uh, we, we covered a lot of ground, but I'll tell you, Steve, when you get out of the RV and it's day 35-ish, whatever, it's a fog, right? And you you are, I mean, just, I just you know, we're tired, right? And and you get out of the RV and you're wondering if you got another day in you and you swing open that door and there's a mom standing there with her son or daughter in a wheelchair and mom's got tears coming down her eyes and her son or daughter in a wheelchair there is just arms out, like big smile on their face, like, please hug me. You're like, shoot, I got another day. I can do this one more time. Yeah. But that's where you've got to, like your mm -hmm. purpose, you've got to nail down why you're doing what you're doing and not just nail it down once, but you've got to figure out how do you remind yourself and your team. And that was the thing too, is our team was with us and they would see and experience the same thing. And we had, we had a team of kind of folks that never really did anything together before. We were essentially at the, the first time our ever team, our, this team we assembled ever did an expedition was this running tour that we did. So we had the film couple. We had um, my family. So my wife and I and my two little kids, there were three and a half and one and a half, were in the RV with us for two months and my wife. Mm -hmm. And then we had, we had a, like a strategic team on the ground that was in a, in a van. They were always one day ahead of us going to the next town to make sure everything was set up. But not once, man, did, did our team start sort of you know bickering and fighting and arguing over sort of the how we're doing what we're doing because everybody what we were reminded on a regular daily basis why we were doing what we're doing and there was no mistake in that there's so much there and uh, i i love the uh the, you know, you're talking about the map because when I was watching the documentary, it, it was, it was all over the place, squiggly line all across America. But as you're talking about that, it hits me that if you're, if your purpose is driving your effort, sometimes you're literally going to go all over the map. It's not necessarily going to be a straight line because you're, you're chasing this, yes. the, the purpose is driving, you know, the, yes. the, the train, so to speak. So 
so you do this 63 and 63 and 63, you, you meet all these people, you've affected these lives. I, I would, I would assume based on what I've seen and what I've heard that the goal was achieved to bring the attention to AT and fundraising and that kind of thing. Yeah. Right? So we, we hired a, a PR firm Edelman. So we, we were able to nail down some, some pretty high level interview opportunities and they were able to help us track our media impressions. So they came up with over a hundred million media impressions uh, that were generated throughout the tour. Again, yeah, pre-social wow. media. Um, and then we generated about $750,000 in donations. So I'll never forget the president of the, the founder, president of the, of the organization called me one day and he said, Tim, he said, the media stuff is great. The fundraising, that's coming in. Like, we're so happy with all that. He said, but you know what's happening that we didn't anticipate that is so life-giving for us is that because we're doing something at the national level, because we're, because we're out there trying to raise money, like you know, we're actively doing this. He said, we have families that sort of gave up on us years ago. We had families who just said, oh, you're not really much of a charity. You're not really providing us a whole lot of support. I'm not really sure that you're generating the money that you're going to need. You know, they, they just sort of, they got discouraged, I guess. And I'll never forget when he said, Tim, we have families that are coming back, families that are saying, wow, this is so cool. We want to get reconnected with you. And hey, are there other families in our area? And then, of course, like I said, we would, we would come into an area because it was pre-social media. We'd be in an area, a hundred mile radius. And people didn't know that people didn't know each other, but yet they, they lived relatively close to each other. And so it was, it was, it was just so great that we could come through and these families would meet each other and then we would leave. And now those relationships have been, have been established. And, and so there was a, I I guess, you know, the team, the the team building effect, I guess, if you would say, right. That that wasn't necessarily one of our, one of our goals. Um, But what was cool is it ended up being, you know, almost more powerful in some cases, right? Because that's the lasting, that's the lasting effect, right? The the money comes and goes, the media impressions come and go, but what stays are those relationships that that you that you build and establish mm-hmm. and develop, and and so uh, yes, so all the way through and through, wildly successful. Everyone was was really pumped about the event. Um, just an absolute honor and privilege to get to use something as, you know, use a, a talent as simple as running uh, combined with a passion for serving others with this purpose of helping to advance the work of the ET Children's Project. Um, I could, I've always said I could, I could never run again and I'd be content. You guys had a ton of fun. You looked like you had a fantastic team in the midst of all of the physical pain and uh, ups and downs. Um, even the, the guy that was driving the bus the whole time seemed to be all in. Mike, yeah. Mike is, yeah, he, yeah, he, he kept us going, man. He was, he's the, he's the glue that held our, our circus wagon together. Yeah. He, he selflessly gave up two months of his life just to drive every day. He rode his bike with me. And just smiling the whole time, cheering you on and preparing the food and all that. Um, so you fast forward several years from the, the AT tour, um, and you're running a dude ranch in the Bay Area of California. Now that that seems like, uh, as I say at CCB sometimes, you know, to my team, that's a hard left turn. So that seems like a hard left turn from ultra marathons, a documentary being created, raising money for charity. So how did that happen and, and what did that look like? Uh, yes, that was, uh, you know, life, life has uh, 
get interesting twists and turns along the road. And uh, there's there's times where we want to try to make the road go straight when it really just there's no there's no straight on the road. And that was 2009. So so I came off the tour and I was trying to continue to be involved in fundraising. Uh, I did some work out, moved to Atlanta, Georgia for a year to help a family uh, get get their nonprofit going. Um, it was it was a hard time, 2007, eight, and nine. Uh, so, so I was I was trying to. I was trying to spread myself out and, and help multiple different organizations. And I even tried to start my own nonprofit that would be an umbrella nonprofit to a bunch of others. Um, so I was trying to figure out how to maximize my efforts to, to raise, raise money and, and, and help more people because I, you know, as one person, I can only do so much running and raise so, so many dollars. So, mm-hmm. so race for good was my big dream and my big idea. And that's how I was going to multiply my efforts and maximize my impact. Uh, but then 2009 market crash uh, took took charity work, uh, you know, out of the game, and the nonprofit industry was truly nonprofit in in 2009. So I fought like I fought like crazy, man, to, to try to keep it going. I I maxed out all credit cards, uh, family, sort of family loans, friends, just trying desperately to to get Race for Good off the ground, and I ended up with $47 in the bank. Rent was due in two weeks. My, I now have three kids, five, three, and one. And, uh, I just, I got no way, I got no way out. I'm, I was up against the wall where it looked like I could be homeless in a pretty short period of time, uh, with, with, uh, with nothing to show for it. So once again, uh, just in our, in our faith, believing that God has a way for us. We went to our knees and prayed and asked God for a way out. And no joke, a couple of days later, walked into church just thinking it was another Sunday. And a guy we had known from our church for, for years um, pulled us aside, said, hey, Tim Michelle, what are you guys doing? I said, why, Frank, you want to go to lunch today? You, you, you want to go to lunch today after church? And he says, no, I need you to move to the ranch. <laughs> I said, excuse me, you have a ranch? <laughs> he says, no, I don't have a ranch. The company I work for, they have a ranch. And I went down there and there's horses everywhere. And he turned to my wife, Michelle, and said, Michelle, you know something about horses, right? She says, yeah, Frank, I was an equine animal science major at Cal Poly in Slow." And he says, what? You can go to school for that? Well, great. Can you guys go down tomorrow? <laughs> so, so the yeah. next day, my wife drove you know, an hour and 45 minutes outside the Bay Area into Boonville to go see this 660-acre horse and cattle ranch that apparently was uh, was sort of in the hands of an, of an underqualified, unqualified, not trustworthy individual who let this place really go. I mean, in bad, in bad ways. So Michelle came down to just to survey the scene and she came back. It was deer in the headlights kind of response when I asked her, you know, what she saw. And she said, "I, I don't really even know. It's crazy. There's horses everywhere and I couldn't get a look at all of them but they don't look good underweight I think some of them are injured like it just it was a it was a bad scene um so then so I said well look I'll, I'll go take a look at it I'll check it out and and so then I came down and and so it was the the CFO of the company was the guy that was trying to recruit us for this deal he said look Tim there's there's a house here he showed me the house you guys can live here there's utilities there's a fuel tank if you guys need fuel you know to get to town like the Basically, you know, the bare essentials are here. Outside of that, like 
nobody can know you're here doing this. This is sort of an undercover deal. And I just need you here on the ground. I need people I know and trust that I can communicate with because clearly this place has been let go for far too long. Uh, would you please, would you just move in for, you know, some period of time just to take care of these horses? You know, back to another purpose-driven effort, right? I mean, the purpose was I don't have a place for my family in, in two weeks. Like, I'm, I can't make rent and I'm going to be evicted. And this place comes with a house. So we reluctantly said, we said yes. We were pretty scared. We, you know, three young kids, really young kids, and and living in the Bay Area near friends and family. Kids were part of a bunch of bunch of playgroups. And we had Michelle's folks living nearby. We had the in-laws. We had the hospital. We had right, all of your services nearby. It was very comfortable and very cozy. And here we're moving out to hillbilly paradise, right? <laughs> and uh, no cell phone reception. I mean, no, no stores for 45 yeah. minutes. Nobody knows us. We don't know anybody. Nobody would know if we went missing. <laughs> it was, sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a perfect, perfect place to raise a family. Yeah. And, and again, Steve, I, I, apparently I, I have a way of saying yes to things that, that really cause people around me to tell me that I'm, I'm a nut job. So again, I was told that I'm crazy. That, uh, you know, dropping everything, leaving the city, going out to the country to move on this ranch. I'm not qualified. Right? I, I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm risking my family. I'm just just all these things. Right. So so it's interesting how oftentimes we make these big, big, bold moves of, of faith. And uh, mm -hmm. and then and then oftentimes we're met with a lot of ob, uh, adversity and opposition from people that we know and people that we would like to. Here's, you know, say, yes, this is great. And, and, and they're not. Um, so we prayed a prayer, got answered. So in faith, we said, we got to go. So we signed a five month contract. And within uh, two or three weeks, we were living out of black trash bags in somebody else's house with no beds, just sleeping on the floor. Uh, we didn't bring any furnishings down. We were just going to do this five month contract and we we're going to move as many of these hundred horses as we could off the property. And then we were going to settle at the end with some some commission check, but essentially we were working five months for no paycheck, uh, just hoping oh that at goodness. the at the end there would be something there for us. But knowing that ultimately our commitment was trying to rescue and resuscitate the land and the animals, that was really our our goal was to make sure that these horses find reasonable good, good homes. So at the end of the five months, by God's grace, we we were able to move almost all the horses. Uh, we had a really successful auction at the end of it where we sold fifty five horses and. I don't know, four hours at an auction yard. Wow. And uh, we were able to sort of check the box off, like, hey, we accomplished this. Well, apparently we did such a good job that they asked if we could stay and they would fire the manager, the, the prior, I guess, still current quote unquote manager who had made the mess and caused all the problems. Mm -hmm. And But I was planning on going back to town and trying to still keep my nonprofit going. I was, I was still hustling, trying to find jobs. I was not bought in to live in life out in the country. The two things that really uh, were, were keeping me from sort of pulling the plug and, and really doing, doing my family a major disservice was that you know, I, had, I had nowhere to go to, right? There was nothing out there for me to go to. Um, so that's, that's pretty straightforward. But really the other one was, look, you're getting paid to live here. You're now on payroll. You've benefits. Like you're getting paid to live here. Why, why would you just pull the plug and leave? Right? Especially sure. when you got nowhere to go to, you've got a roof over your head, you've got kids are taken care of. And, and now I'm starting to, as we lived here longer and longer, I was seeing my wife and my kids just really come alive. They were loving being on the ranch. 
they were becoming bolder and braver just around the animals and they were taking up horses and animals and we were getting involved in 4-H and they're going to a little they were going to a little one-room schoolhouse with you know 20 kids grades K to 8 literally and you know in one schoolhouse wow. it's a total little house on the prairie kind of deal my kids would ride their horses to school it was really a, a a lifestyle right that that was really good for my family and and so I thought man what an ass I would be if if for my own selfish intentions and 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 desires like I pulled the plug on this place and just and just left and, 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 did, and did something else. And so something that sort of dawned on me through that season is, is you know, make sure you know why you're doing what you're doing, but also understand that there's a time and season for everything under the heavens and, and your why will change as your season changes, as your seasons change, mm. right? That's good, that's good. As you move to the next chapter in the book, you might want to consider revisiting your why and understanding that Hey, maybe we need a new why to make sure that we make this the next best chapter. We talk about nailing your why and, and doing that when I ran 63 marathons across the country. Well, I was, it was pretty easy to be remembered why we were doing what we we're doing on a daily basis. And, and even though, you know, you would think that, oh, you're living and working with your kids on a ranch. Like, isn't that, aren't you reminded daily? And I would, you know, say yes in, in one sense, but in another, I would say the challenges I'm, I'm struggling with. Well, these aren't the, this isn't exactly what I want to be doing right now. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think the key is, well, that's not what's important. What I want to be doing isn't important right now. What's important is, is why, why do I exist right now in this season and, and in this season of our life to understand that now it's about fighting for the hearts and minds and souls of, of my family and not about me chasing my, some running dreams of mine you know, the, the why really should be driving the what. Um, so uh, it's been, it, look, it's, it's been amazing. I mean, we're, so we're now, we, we went four and a half years and, and I, I was able to stay. The reason why we stayed here was because I knew I was doing this for the kids. I mean, that was really the only reason I was fighting to live a lifestyle that my family really wanted to live. And like, I love that we have, we're literally living and working together. So we're having all of our meals together and all of our fun time is together because when we're not working, we're playing together and there's just a lot more that we get to do together. Um, and so it, it made the, the daily chores a little bit more manageable, but, but that's really the, the reason why we stay is like, look, this is a lifestyle that, that the family wants to live. And, and if you're in, I'm in. And so let's do this together. And so we did that for four and a half years and then we were fired from our day job. But, Oh, yeah. So we were given our 30 day notice because all the while, while we were here, the ranch was also on the market. It was for sale. And so we essentially, our job for four and a half years was just to make sure this property was show ready. Um, this was just a, Hey, the realtors are coming down. They're showing the ranch. You need to make it show ready. You need to make sure it's ready to sell. So that was really, wow. that, that was our job, which also makes it really hard to stay because you feel like, you know, you're only here for one reason and that's to work yourself out of a job. <laughs> Cause it's, yeah, yeah. Kind of borrowed time. Yeah. You're on borrowed time. And so again, I had people around me like, Tim, what are you doing? Why aren't you building yourself a career? Why are you just living on this ranch? It's for mm -hmm. sale. And certainly you're mm -hmm. going to be out of a job. Uh, you know, you should be moving on to bigger and better things. And Michelle and I kept coming back to, we're getting paid to live here. The lifestyle's great. You know, why would we pull the plug on something that's working right now today out of fear of the unknown, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. often we let the worries of tomorrow steal the joys of today. That's good. So we, we committed that we would, 
we would stay. And then four and a half years into it, the owner says, well, you know what? I'm just, I've lost too much money. The ranch was supposed to sell. It's not selling. I'm done. I want to get out from underneath this ranch. I want to cut my losses to a bare minimum. So this is your 30 day notice. I'm no longer going to pay you. Let's get rid of, at that time, they still had some horses here, you know, get rid of all of our horses. And we're going to just kind of shut the gates and walk away. And I came back and I said, look, this place is amazing. We've been here for four and a half years now. We, we think there's a lot of opportunity with this ranch. Um, we're not ready to leave because she said you're fired, but you don't have to leave. You're welcome to stay, but I'm just not going to pay you anymore. So that sounds like a great deal. Where do I sign? So I said, well, look, how about, right. so I said, how about we do stay, but how about we stay and, and in 31 days, you know, you stop losing money and, and we'll now in 31 days, we'll re be responsible for all the liabilities on the ranch, but in exchange, we get the lease. So we won't pay you. You won't pay us. You still get to own the asset, but just kind of let it go and, you know, walk away and we'll take it. We'll take it from here. We have some great ideas as long as we're living here. And as long as we can start our own business, you know, we'll work overtime. We'll work seven days a week. We'll work 14 hour days. If we know that we're working mm -hmm. for something bigger, if we know we're working for ourselves. So she reluctantly agreed and she gave us a 30 day lease. So we launched the Bar SC Ranch hospitality business on a 30 day lease with a for sale sign out front for, for three months. It was literally a, another sort of endurance race where we were trying to spin up our business and, and get our business to sort of prove out the business model in such a way where we could convince the owner to give us more time before she sold the ranch. So we, we went month to month, uh, three months, and then literally it came down to, I knew that somebody was trying to put an offer in on the ranch. And so I, I spun up a meeting with the owner and I brought in our financials and our calendar and I, I opened up our books and I said, look, this is working. We're doing great. We've, we're paying the bills. You know, nobody's called you. No creditors are after you because we're paying all the bills. We're taking care of everything. But the problem is we got people wanting to make reservations you know, three and four months out now, but we can't do that on a month to month lease. So, uh, you know, this thing's going so well. Can we, can we get some more time? And would you be willing to give us a longer term lease? So uh, at that point in time, she agreed to take the ranch off the market and give us a seven year lease, uh, which was a, a huge victory for us at the time because, and then within 24 hours, she got a cash offer on the ranch. Oh, yeah. I mean, it literally, Steve, it was like a photo finish. I mean, we were, we were trying to get a deal with her before, before someone came through with a realtor. And so, uh, so we nailed down the lease. So that was uh, six years ago. We're coming into, we're just getting ready to start year seven. So we are in another interesting season in our life. So we've, we've got mm -hmm. a really successful dude ranch business. The Bar C Ranch was established in 2014. Uh, we've grown to, to almost a half a million in revenue. Uh, we have no debt, no loans. We're doing incredibly well. We're all family, family owned and operated. Uh, we provide unique country experiences out on the ranch from shooting guns for the first time to riding horses to sitting around the campfire to cuddling animals to riding the tractor. So we know this is what we want to do and not just for the next couple of years, but this is what my son, my son wants to do. He wants to run the, the family business. Um, so we're trying to find our own promised land. We're trying to figure out how to make sure that we still, we can still be doing this, you know, in the next 20 years. And so um, without anything, major shifting right now we're out we're, we're closing in on 
on the one year mark to when we need to be out. So one of the things that I, that I love at this point um, that I didn't have prepared is, is in the midst of all the ambiguity, in the midst of all the unknown, you still are pushing forward. Like you, you know, each step along the way, they uh, are trying to sell the ranch. Uh, now you're, you're staring down the barrel of the last year and yet you're still pushing forward. And, and now your, your son wants to run the family business and who knows what's going to happen. But I love that you are still mentally pushing forward um, and, and trying to figure out what the next phase is going to look like. I mean, that's encouraging um, because a lot of us, we look at people with great websites or huge businesses and we think, well, oh, they just got it all figured out, you know? Um, so it's refreshing to hear that you're, you're still, um, you're human. You know, you, you, you might look and, and feel like superhuman when, uh, when I read your stats about all the, how fast you run marathons and that kind of thing. But man, this is good. Um, there's a couple more things that I, that I want to hit on. There's two more questions, really. One, one more question about leadership and then one about running. So first, uh, the running question, uh, what's the biggest myth people believe about long distance running? Uh, it, was, it was a dream of mine to, to write a book one day um, mm-hmm. titled Respect the Distance. Most people, their myth, the, I think the greatest myth, which is also the greatest deterrent to people um, finishing well, right? So it's respect the distance and it's run the race in such a way where you can finish well, where you can finish strong. And, and I was thinking about trying to write a book because there's so many correlations, right, in, in, in how we run the race of life. So many people show up to the start line of a marathon, man, with, with, with no plan on how they're going to pace themselves. The myth would be um, that I'm, I'm going to run as fast as I can, as long as I can, and hope that I get as close to the finish as possible because I know, I expect that the wheels will come off the bus. I expect to bonk or hit the wall which people talk about, like, I expect that. So I'm just hoping to get as far as I can before that happens. Bonking and hitting the wall is not an expectation. That's a result of poor planning and poor execution on your part. That's good. It's a result, but not of long distance running. It's a result of you not preparing and not executing. So for instance, your second half marathon should be faster than the first half. And your last mile should actually be faster than your first mile. Seems counterintuitive because it seems impossible. People can lose 20 and 30 minutes of clock time in the last five miles, 10 miles, because they absolutely just destroyed themselves, right? But think about the inverse of that. Mm-hmm. You could gain you know, 20 or 30 minutes if you play your cards right on the front half. The back half is going to go incredibly well for you, and you're going to be hooping and hollering. Hey, nice work, man. Way to go. Yeah. Like you're going to be feeling like a million bucks those last five miles because you played your cards right and because you respected the distance and you did everything you needed to do in the front half so that the back half, you could really hammer it. So this is how I ran 63 marathons in 63 days. My, my trainer said, look, Tim, you no longer need to run to finish your race like each day. When you start your race on Monday, you're running not for the finish line of Monday, but for the start line of Tuesday, right? So, so stop thinking about it, you know, it, you, you know, stop thinking about it as, you know, as what do I, what have I already done, but rather what do I still need to do and going ahead? So 
don't expect to to fail you know just short of the of the goal line expect to run your race in such a way that you will finish well but respect the distance and know that right now today you need to do the things that probably other people aren't doing go ahead and get passed by the 60 year old woman doesn't matter like let her pass you it's only mile 5 yep let's plan our pace first and then make sure you pace to the plan making sure that we're patient and we're persistent and we have a plan and like don't let the people around you do not let the people around you sort of misdirect you or cloud your judgment. Because if you know what you're doing, how you're doing it, and you're confident in you and of yourself and sort of what you're doing and the pace that you're running, don't let other people steal your joy and, and ruin your plan. Uh, I will read that book if it ever comes out, man. Respect <laughs> the distance, man. I'm telling you. Uh, last question I've got is the leadership side of things. So who or what has had the biggest influence on your leadership journey? I, I guess I'll, I'll probably choose the latter, and that's more so the what, because I have had a number of folks that have been, you know, pr- provided me some, some great counsel over the years and, and set great examples. So I think I would say higher level than that and say what, what has helped me, and I would say it's the fact that I have actively sought and pursued coaching, counsel, mentorship, learning to be patient and and strive to be just the best version of myself, knowing that that's going to mean I have to hear hard things and accept hard realities about myself. So good. You're always, always being a learner. So seeking out counsel and mentorship, that is very, very solid advice. Um, thank you, Tim, for, um, for taking the time. For, there's so much here. We're going to put in the show notes as well. For those of us uh, listening in, we're going to put in the show notes website addresses for uh, the Bar SZ Ranch and uh, several other things that, that Tim has mentioned along the way. And uh, Tim, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking time to share all of this. I'm grateful for uh, knowing you, the little bit that we've gotten to know each other, and uh, and also you just being open to share your journey with us. Uh, Steve, thank, thanks for having me. It's It's an honor to get to to share. And, and I am reminded as I share with you, it reminds me, I, I have so much to be thankful for. Sometimes we get caught up in the weeds and we forget. We don't, he- we, we don't hear our own story until we oftentimes share it. So even just having this chance to share with you has sort of re-energized me in some ways as well. So thank you for inviting me on the show. I love it. All right, so my takeaway and action item. I've got two things when it comes to the takeaways. So here we go, takeaways. Number one, purpose-driven effort. It's characterized by pure motives. It's the extra push when things are difficult. It requires self-reflection and accountability. Number two, respect the distance. We don't have to bonk or crash along the way. Preparation and pacing are key. This is where I struggle. Pacing myself is hard for me. I want to win it all now, but preparation and pacing are key. And then having a mentor or running partner or spouse or colleague who thinks miles ahead of you is vital to finishing the race, the career, the life well. Action items. This year was supposed to be a 5K and is ending up feeling more like running a tour across the U.S. It's exhausting. It doesn't seem like the finish line is ever going to get here. 
We can't go back in time to prepare, but we can do two things. Remind ourselves of the purpose behind our efforts and surround ourselves with people who respect the distance ahead. You need more encouragement, and we've got some for you. Head to ccbtechnology.com slash podcast or search in your podcast app the impact of leadership for dozens of other interviews just like this one. You'll hear topics covered like what optimism really is, how to hold on to family values while scaling a business, and how to lead when you're not in charge. Those are just a few examples of topics that are covered. And if you are listening on your phone, please click subscribe. Give us a five-star rating and a written review. It helps us reach more folks, increase our influence with people like you that need to hear these positive messages. And we love hearing how these stories are impacting you. And as always, from all of us at CCB Technology, thanks for listening.